Hello, and welcome to the Gut Feeling Podcast, speaking with musicians on how they found their sound. I'm your host, Gregory Adams, and this latest episode, in many ways, is a ground zero for my personal entry into local punk rock. It's a conversation with Tom Thacker, the longtime guitarist for Canadian pop punk institution Sum 41, whom are just about to release their final album, Heaven and Hell, in 2024. But Tom is also the co-founder of the legendarily irreverent goofball, at times fast as hell, always catchy, Langley BC-formed punkers gob. That's a mouthful, but damned if they don't deserve the hype. Tom is also, to me, the guy behind the counter at AMB Sound, the Western Canadian music chain he worked at while Gob was making their first records in the mid-90s. He worked at the Wally location in North Surrey, which happened to be just down the street from my junior high. I was kind of a record store rat, so I was there a ton as it was. But when I figured out that the guy with the blue mohawk was also the guitarist in Gob, I kind of showed up a little more than normal just to shoot the shit with him. Tom very kindly took this in stride. By the time the band's soda video started making the rounds on Much Music a few months later, this kind of thing probably started happening more and more for him. How would I best describe Gob? I don't really know. Tom called the first nine-song EP from 1994 more indie than punk. Fair enough, perhaps. 1995's Too Late No Friends is a speed-obliterated bit of pop-punking, but it was more profoundly blown out with bass fuzz and slick strat-neck noodling and a double vocal tandem that was way off from most of the NoFX worship of that era. They've had hardcore-adjacent moments, inspired by some of the local bands in their scene. They dropped some true pop-rock bangers like I Hear You Calling, still a staple of rock radio, at least in Vancouver. Adventurous stuff from album to album, almost always delivered with tongue-in-cheek humor, whether that be lyrically, vis-a-vis the wacky video treatments, or by the on-command burping of Gob's co-founding guitarist vocalist Theo Gutsunakis. I'm off on a bit of a tangent here, but Gob is super important to me. You know what? For many lower mainland punks of an age. They have a catalog that absolutely stands the test of time, which is fitting considering Dynalone Records just re-released four of their albums on vinyl. More importantly, Tom was the first local punk I met that was actually doing things in town. Playing shows, booking shows, making records, going on tour. Gob have also always been kind and approachable within their community, always willing to plug their local scene, such as their run of Punk Strikes Back shows back in the 90s that featured fellow locals like DBS, Spark Marker, Smugglers, 10 Days Late, um, let's see, Buy a Thread, Complete, The Retreads. Botch came up for one of those shows. My first band, The Self-Esteem Project, hopped on one of those bills in 1997. In particular, I think Tom has just afforded me a lot of kindness over the years, from just being an annoying kid bugging him at work, to helping some of my bands play some shows, to the time Tom called me up like roughly 20 years ago to ask me if I wanted to come on tour with Gob to sell some merch because he knew that I needed to make a bit of money before going on my first West Coast tour with my band at the time, The Red Light Sting. Just a very thoughtful, always helpful person. So this talk reflects some of those kindnesses and just how interconnected Tom was within his local scene, punk and hardcore bands in the early to mid-90s in particular. It talks about Tom growing up, going to bush parties in Langley, getting Gob off the ground with Theo, but also a bassist whom he'd worked with at A&B Sound. We also get into those vinyl reissues and where the band might be with some new music some 10 years after releasing their last long player, Apartment 13. Before jumping into the talk, I will just say here that Gut Feeling is both a podcast and a newsletter featuring interviews, gear talks, label guides, and more. 
You can find the full archive of pods and posts over at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling, or you can set up notifications to receive these episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and more. Getting back to business, this is a conversation with Tom Thacker of Sum41 in Gob. While Tom has been living in New York for several years now, this interview was recorded as he was hanging out in his childhood home in Langley, B.C. I guess I've technically seen your face online a lot over the years, but uh, you know, and I wouldn't even really say this is technically a face-to-face conversation. But uh, it's 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 been a while since I've seen you. You look good. You too, man. It's been I think the last time was Andy Dixon's art show in New York City. That's exactly that's exactly where it was. I was going to say the same thing. Now, like, how long have you been in New York in general? I have been in New York for twenty years. Yeah. Uh, it's great. I, you know, it's, uh, so I followed, uh, a, a girl there, a woman, and my wife went there to go to medical school and she, we're one of the few people that stayed, you know, she went to medical school, uh, residency fellowship, got a job. And most people are pretty transient in New York. Like they have a few years and then that kind of expires, but we, we love the city, you know, it's just, it's awesome. I mean, I think everybody does. Everybody loves to visit. A lot of people, a lot of musicians will say, I love it, but I, I couldn't live there. And it's like, yeah, you spent all your time there in Times Square. That's where all New Yorkers avoid because it's it's crazy. Yeah, uh, but we, yeah we live uptown, Upper East Side, and uh, it's still bustling, but it's, uh, it's pretty chill. We have a son now, five-year-old son. It's pretty wild. We're both from the West Coast and we're raising a city kid. It's it's just it's super cool. It's 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 interesting the contrast living in the city, the big city and raising a kid there. And the things they have to learn. Yeah. Um, the safety stuff, there's cars and buses everywhere. So they have to have eyes in the back of their head from the get-go. <laughs> um, is is uh is is he interested in music? He is, yeah, for sure. Uh He's not really interested in playing music, but he, he always writes his little songs and stuff. He's got a bunch of little tunes that he makes up and he'll sing them. Um, but uh, we put him in a, a box violin class. He was only two at the time, so we make a macaroni box violin. And once they stop dropping the box, then they can play a violin. And I had no idea that there's like four or eight different sizes of violins. So you got this little yeah. tiny violin that's like too small for me to play. <laughs> um, but the teacher was fantastic and she uh she would have a zoom meeting with all the parents because you know you're paying someone money to teach your two-year-old violin but you know the kids don't even pick up the violin or really tell us anything that they my son doesn't tell us anything about it but anyway she would do these zoom meetings and then she asked if any of the parents wanted to just learn violin and i was like uh, yeah so there was a small group of us that she would give a lesson to so I would practice every day to show that I was a diligent student and give him an example. And he was just like, stop playing. Um, but it, it was really fun. So he hasn't really shown any interest in, in dedicating practice time towards learning an instrument, but he, he loves music. Um, everything from like his first favorite was The Clash somehow. Like, yeah, I don't think I was showing him The Clash, but he just found it. 
maybe he's like, well, this kind of looks like badass, so I'm gonna like this. And it's great. <laughs> I really like that. And that was latest as well. Too Swift. feels like this fall in particular it's been a very busy time for the band between uh you know some touring with billy talent some some other shows and these represses like is is that fair to say is is this an especially has this been an especially busy year for for gob it has been an especially busy year for gob we had about i mean coinciding with having a child like like i'm old enough a father that i'm i'm sort of i want to be home you know i want to experience that and then I was forced home during the pandemic. And that was as horrible of a time as that was for the world. It was a fantastic time for me because I had a one and a half year old and I got to spend every day with him and go to Central Park and bring, you know, bongo drums and a soccer ball and, and snacks. Um, but I had, I basically had about, once I had a kid, I was sort of like, some 41's busy. I, I need to kind of put the brakes on Gob for a little bit. And then, you know, we started talking about the, we've been talking to Dine Alone about putting out vinyl for a while. Um, we started with Too Late No Friends and it was a false start because there was an issue with a company that they were working with. But it just this year just happened to be, it was a light year for Sum 41 and I had spoken to Gob's agent. And oddly, the first thing that was brought up was they were like, would you guys be interested in touring with Avril again? And it was, it's like, okay, that's kind of weird, but it's kind of, it would have made sense. Like 20 years later, it's like the, She's got a the punk rock band that she brought 20 years ago. Anyway, that fell through. But I think agents started talking. So we wound up getting these insane shows. So um, instead of having a, a quiet year at home while my son started kindergarten, I started, I picked up all, I was traveling with Gob a lot. And it was great. You know, like the Billy Talent guys are fantastic. We've been friends for a while. Um, and it was great for Gob. It just happened to coincide with the vinyl releases. Is, is a good thing. You you mentioned that it took it took a little while to get these reissues going. I actually remember doing an interview with with Theo, Steve, and Gabe like 10, 10 years ago now. And in that they were they were hyping up the fact that you had re-recorded the first EP, which is now part of this uh, you know, the vinyl vinyl reissue series. Like is is that how far back the reissue plans have, have gone? Like is has it been 10 years to get even just the, the first EP on vinyl? Well, the EP was talked about. We, you know, that was a thing that that had just followed Apartment 13. So we we had the idea to re-record that and uh, and with sort of the same uh, spirit. Although the first one, we you know, we recorded it in a day. So we, we went into a rehearsal space with uh, Todd from the McCrackens, who I was the drummer of the McCrackens at the time. And he had been recording all the McCrackens stuff. So we just decided we need to do something for Gob. It's like the, the genesis of Gob. And so we went in and recorded. We had a bunch of songs and we picked those songs and banged those out. Did them super quick. We mixed them in one day ourselves. Um, and we wanted to kind of keep that spirit, but do it with the new lineup in a state-of-the-art studio and just record it live off the floor. So that's what we did. It's it's interesting because I I prefer the original like I, as much as the new one sounds better. You mm -hmm. recorded at the Armory. It's recorded mm -hmm. on an analog, state of the art studio. 
there's something about the first one and its imperfections that I don't know. Maybe it's just nostalgia for me because maybe <laughs> everyone else thinks the new one sounds better. But yeah, that was in that was a plan then in 2014. But yeah. we uh, no the too late no friends thing that it started with too late no friends and we were going to do that and then Dino Long like made it a larger project and got all of the network releases. And yeah, that was super exciting. That was all stuff that we were talking about over the pandemic. Something interesting that you mentioned there is just that, you know, you, you do prefer perhaps the, the original recordings. Maybe that's nostalgia. Maybe that's, that's experience. Uh, but you know, um, Re-recording that EP kind of fits in line with with a lot of gob where you know you did re-record some of those EP songs for Too Late No Friends. Uh there's the FU EP where there has there are, you know, other versions of of songs from from Too Late No Friends. Like I'm wondering in in general with the scope of gob, like what had appealed to you about, you know, the idea of of reworking a song, giving it a new life, and you know, not keeping a song in amber. Uh it's hard to say. Like, I'm trying to think of the songs that we re-recorded. I think for Too Late No Friends, we re-recorded the song Cleansing because we felt like it needed a more up-tempo, more energetic take. Um, Custer's last one, I sent, has just always been one of my favorite gob songs. It still comes, if anyone's ever like, let's cut that off the set. We can't cut that. That's the song. So that's why we would have re-recorded that one for um, Too Late No Friends. I guess we recorded a couple more. I'm not sure. I guess we needed a full length and maybe Mint had uh, like liked those songs back then. It's, I can't remember the whole thing. The FUEP was a, a slightly different story because um, so we had signed to Arista and they were ready to put our record out, but Network wanted us to write some more songs. They were like, look, we've got the summer tour come up, coming up. We've got the record in the bag, but let's do some recording and writing and stuff over over the summer while we do this work for whatever touring we were doing. And then they kind of talked us into working with writers. The other guys were going with writers. They're like, he asked me if I would want to write with writers and I said no. And he said, well, the other guys are going with writers. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll try it. It doesn't really <laughs> hurt. And so I went and worked with Butch Walker down in Atlanta and uh, Cliff Magnus in Los Angeles. And, uh, the Butch stuff was really fun. Like we had a great time working together. And uh, one of the songs was never released, but one of those songs became Give Up the Grudge. But in that period, Arista wanted to put something out. So we had a couple songs that we weren't going to put on the record, L.A. Song and Sick With You. And so we went into the studio in Vancouver and recorded those. And while we were in there, we just did an updated version of Soda with our current lineup. And maybe another one, I can't remember. But uh, definitely soda. I think it was we just wanted the recording quality to be of the caliber of these songs because the recordings had gotten better since Too Late No Friends. We spent more money in the studio, more time in the studio, so we just yeah. wanted soda to have the same sonic quality. I think I, I prefer the original of that one too. I don't know. There's something about the scrappy <laughs> spirit of it, but the, I don't know. The recording sounds good too.
Let's talk about the scrappy spirit of young Tom Thacker. Like before getting back into Gob, I'm wondering if we could take it back to just growing up in the Fraser Valley and grow, you know, you're you're in the house that you grew up in right now. Like like what was what was life like when when you were a kid, you know, before punk rock? What did you do in Langley? So I, I remember a sign in, in like when you drove into Langley when I first when we first moved into this house, it said, Welcome to Langley, 20, population twenty thousand. So it was pretty small. The suburbs in Vancouver, I think Surrey was always pretty big. It was always a large population there, but it kind of expanded so much that by the time it was the 90s, it was sort of like this. The rural met this almost sort of uh, almost city-like language. Um, so there was a lot of people. There was a lot of kids with not a lot to do. I was interested in music. You know, I picked up a guitar and sat in my room playing guitar for hours. Like that was my sort of escape and my sort of refuge during the turbulent um, uh, times of, of uh, puberty, going through puberty. And, yeah. uh, and and during that time, you know, there, there wasn't a lot to do in the suburbs. There were, you, like people would go to parties, people would get into fights, they would take, like we would sneak out and take someone's car out or whatever. And anytime there was any sort of musical thing, which I happen to be interested in, Tons of people would go. It could be a, a band playing Van Halen covers without a singer. And there would be like, people would be into it. I knew that that was a thing in the suburbs. Like people wanted an outlet. They wanted a thing. You could go into the city and some shows, but um, there was nothing happening really like that in the suburbs. There were punk shows, for sure, but they weren't really as organized. Mm-hmm. So once we started to become a band, we started doing shows at the Langley Civic Center. You know, when we started, there were promoters that would put on shows, but it was sort of like a, there was a bit of an inroad, but not really. Like we never got to play any big shows, and I felt like the biggest shows were when they put local bands together. If we played with Sparkmarker and Cub, other bands that were more like more established, but local bands that people were into, the shows were always better. So we started to take that to the suburb because we knew people were starved for it. You can see it in the city. But if you bring Spark Marker or the Smugglers or a brand new unit out and put all these bands together in the suburbs, the kids would go crazy. So the first show that we did, we started, we would just go flyer to school. And, uh, you know, when we were counting the people coming into the show, like it was a, the fire marshal limit was 400. Once we got to 200, there was a huge lineup outside still. And we were like, let's count every second person. Once we got to 300, so we count every fourth person. I don't know how many kids were in that first show that we put on, but clearly there was a thing people wanted. And I knew that because I grew up there. It was the suburbs. It's like you could go out and get your fuck yourself up by getting in a fight or going to a party and get drunk. Or I got chased by a bull one time walking across a field to get to a bush party. Sorry, you were you were chased by what? A bull. A bull. I had to dive over a fence or get trampled by a bull. And we were on our way to a party, so we showed up at a party with a case of beer, and I had like barbed wire ripped down my shirt. <laughs> so I mean, as much as a punk rock show, it's like it's it can be pretty intense, and you know, it's, I mean, not as much as it was in the seventies or eighties. It was pretty violent times in Los Angeles and stuff, but in the suburbs, it was, you know, it was a that kind of crazy, but yeah. much more civilized than um, out running a bowl going to a bush party. The 
before you, you you take on the running of the bulls, you know, before you start booking these shows, uh, you, you mentioned that you're you're playing guitar in your bedroom. Like, how, how did you come around to guitar? And, and what was that? Uh, what was that first six string for you? I You know, I always my grandmother and one of my sets of grandparents was a pope and one was in Surrey. My grandma and hope had a piano and I just always wanted to plunk around on the piano. And I never took lessons, but I just music was always a thing. My grandfather in Surrey had a bunch of guitars, like the piece of guitars, electric guitars, banjos hanging on the wall and pulling them and plunk on them. I, I, I'm I'm not sure what, what I was into at first, by like some kind of heavy metal Martin crew or something, but my mom got me a guitar from my grandfather and that kind of started my like tried to learn a couple of cowboy chords and stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's funny because it took a few times of trying it and it's it's like this with everyone. Like guitar is actually a relatively easy instrument to learn and a forgiving instrument. But that first step of like building those calluses and those, that strength in the arm, that took a few tries for me. And I think I maybe got a guitar at 12 or 13 and didn't really start playing it for about a year and yeah. a half later, once I built up the strength and the balancing. This will connect to something that I want to bring up later in the talk. But like, what can you tell me about the song As Far As The Eye Can See by TNT, which, which is a song that I know for a fact that you can play? Um. I don't even know if I can play that. I might have been able to play it at one time. But yeah, I love that song. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you talked about that song before. Well, I'll tell you what, what happened was, you know, we, we have a little bit of history, you and I. Uh, there was a time about 20 years ago that, uh, you know, I did a little road trip with Gob selling merch uh, through Alberta. And what one key memory that I have about this is that you were in the back of the van playing this beautiful song. And I thought it was like this textural, like emo punk thing that Gob was going to go for. And I was like, Tom, what is this beautiful fucking song that you're playing? And you're like, oh, it's this old hair metal song. You know, as soon as I got home, I I, I found the song. It's a be beautiful song, different kind of treatment than I would have imagined. Because I would have thought in my mind, oh, this is how Gob would have treated it. And then to hear it as like an actual, just like banger European metal song, like uh, just, different worlds. Just like drowning in reverb. And I probably played it more of like a folk style, I guess, in the back of the back of the van. It was just just like an unplugged, you know, electric, just uh, just working through it. That that was that. I guess that was uh, you know zoning out during a eight hour drive. I kind of kind of thing. Yeah, I can't say that I ever really got too into TNT, but I do remember that song like resonated. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that one. Actually, I mean, you go even further back with Gob. I think I remember you in, when I worked at AB Andy Sound in uh, EP days, and you coming yeah. in and introducing yourself. I well, can't remember that band or what. That's like that's how that's how I remember. Uh, you know, like I I remember getting the EP. Uh, and then um, my sister had a friend that worked with you at A and B Sound, and it just kind of came out that you know you worked there. And the AMB Sound, the the record store in Wally, BC, it happened to be just down the street from my junior high. So I would just walk in like after school and just be like, hey, hey, Tom, hey, guy from Gob, like, tell me about punk. Yeah, there were a few kids that would come in. That, it was kind of fun. I didn't work there for that long after that. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of cool to be kind of. And we were a very accessible band. 
like I was saying about no real inroads into the industry, like it really didn't seem like the industry would would pay us any sort of attention. So we did everything ourselves. And that was the time of uh, book your own fucking life with maximum rock and roll would put out. It was that Bible of addresses that you could contact and, and it made it possible for everyone to tour from your abandoned Alaska. You could tour down to Florida. If not book a show, book a place to stay or book a, go to a store where you could sell your records, which is what we would do if we couldn't, you know, we go to a skate shop and we could buy some of our shit and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, we need gas to get to the next city. But we we knew we had to make that happen. So we were very like, not only like we were appreciative of anyone who paid any attention to us, but we also kind of wanted to bring everyone in and have a very inclusive kind of scene, I guess. How many copies of the EP do you think you sold? Your like, Ed, like, do you recall, you know, someone coming to the counter with your EP when you were working at AMB Sound? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I can't remember how many. We would have moved a couple hundred copies of it, probably. Yeah, <laughs> but not a ton. I, I, I don't know that every, that everyone there was terribly supportive of it, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, we we, we sold some. It was on the indie uh, order list for a little while. into the start of gob like i there i will credit the 155 podcast for 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 bringing this to my attention but vis-a-vis you but you you played in a band with i think your cousin prior to playing in gob like was was tell me about your first band yeah so the year that i graduated high school um i kind of didn't have anything going on because i was uh i mean i I didn't need anything going on because this happened so fast but it was sort of like, am I going to university? Am I doing this? But my cousin happened to visit for a family thing, and he's about 10 years older. And he was starting a band. They sat down with me, and it's like, okay, you can play. So let's let's play. His writing style was a lot different. He was using a lot of more advanced like jazz chords and stuff, and he would start his scales in a, in a very more jazz kind of way instead of the second inversion or third inversion or whatever. And she played totally different in a foreign way than what I played. And it was amazing. It was like a total education for me. Um, it was, I mean, the band itself, the band was called Big. And then when we became, when we realized there was another band called Big, we changed it to, we changed it to Problematic, which I was really, that was sort of like the falling apart of the band. But the band didn't really have a focus. It was kind of all over the place. You would have a soft kind of jazzy kind of song and then, thrash metal song i think the thing that the frustrating part is we wrote a song they said let's write a fuck song and we were like okay and so my favorite word is fuck and it was this sort of thrash metal song and that was the one everybody liked um that came to the shows but i think my cousin who like labored over these very interesting like, ideas and songs um the people yeah, only yeah. love the low-hanging fruit yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, we know, but people also like something that they can relate to that isn't as you know. Not everybody like has needs something cerebral. Like it's it takes that sort of like people that are more into music. So it's harder to yeah. get into a band. To get into a fresh band with kind of crazy music. But you know, it's kind of we were losing members and stuff, and I really had no interest in leaving the band. But I, I really wanted to start something. 
you know, a year had gone by or something, and it's sort of like I need to get a, a real job or go to school or something or start a band. And, you know, Theo was always kind of a, a friend who was always kind of in and out of my life. And he had started a project that uh, was more of like a Seattle kind of sounding thing. And so I started, he asked me to play with them. And then once that broke up, we had started kind of started to write songs and our songs started to get better. But the songs mm-hmm. that we liked were more punk rock songs that were um, more upbeat, more fun. We were into indie rock and punk at that time. Like I liked uh, Sloan and Eric's Trip and uh, Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and uh, Sebado. But then The Descendants and uh, the Ramones. So it was, we were sort of like the first EP is a little more, has a little more of that indie kind of thing going on. This first EP, like a little before my time, like when this comes out. So I never quite saw the perhaps original lineup of Gob. I'm wondering what you can tell me about uh, Kelly that, that plays bass in the band. Who was, was she in the the equation? Kelly worked at uh, AMB Sound as well. So I, uh, when Theo and I did the first demos that would have become Gob, I don't, I don't know if there, any of the songs wound up being released on anything, but. I remember I had a cold and I was going to lose my voice, but I had these song ideas. I'm like, we need to record these right now before I lose my voice. Because, you know, when you're 19, like everything, everything needs to be done like that. And so we recorded these five songs that were okay, but they were kind of moving in that direction. They were sort of indie rock with a up-tempo punk thing happening. And I brought those into Ambie Sound and Kelly heard them. And she's like, that's you singing? This is great. Can I play on this? I'm like, yeah, you can play. And so then we had our bass player. It was like no audition. It was just like a, a buddy that I had lunch with at work sometimes. And so we started jamming together. Like I had a drum set. I used the drums that I used in the McCrackens. And we played as a three-piece because we needed to find a drummer. And I don't know if like Dookie had come out yet, but it wasn't even so. Like punk rock was kind of happening to like in a certain circle, but it wasn't a huge thing. So when we were looking for a drummer, it was incredibly difficult for us to find a drummer. Like people would call up and we, I, I can't even remember where we put our, uh, it was like the Georgia Strait or something, put an ad in and people would call up and say, like, I like Nazareth, but yeah, I could play punk rock. And it's like, I don't think it's going to work. Like we need someone crazy. Like to play the at that tempo that we were like inspiring to play at, you need an absolute lunatic. And then Someone responded and they were like, I love Huskadoo. I've actually played in punk bands forever. I sang in a punk band in 1980. We're like, you're the guy. And that was uh, Wolfman Pack. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was the one, we wanted to play everything. Like, there was one thing we noticed in Vancouver is like all these bands took themselves too serious. And we were, we love to make fun of everyone and everything. And that's sort of what we did. We were pain in everyone's ass for years, including our own label mates and, and labels and stuff even people that we love you know but uh he was pat was willing to play like he wanted to play that fast and he was like as fast as you could possibly play he didn't play as hard as gabe does which is surprising because he's the biggest strongest man in the world he's like but he would like kind of toss and drums and it was always kind of an issue for us recording but he gave us that kind of punk rock like he could 
kind of riff with us. He can handle Theo with largely larger larger than life as he is. And uh and he was willing to play whatever we threw at. So he was uh that was the original lineup. And he and he, you know, he stuck around for a while. I don't think he really wanted to he was fine like doing all the sleeping on floors and driving overnight and doing all that. But once we kind of wanted to be a better band, I think he kind of lost it just in it. Yeah, that's interesting. Why wouldn't he have wanted to, uh, you know, uh, grow with the band? Um, well, I think, I mean, he worked in construction and he had a steady job that paid really well. And uh, I think the playing in a punk rock band was more his escape where we were sort of like, we want to do this. We don't want to. I, I went to work with him drywall and stuff. I was lifting drywall and I made a bunch of money, you know, but I was, somebody yelled at me one day when I was like, they weren't even my boss. I was like, fuck this. I, I mean, I'm not doing it. it was like snowing in Squamish or Whistler or something. And uh, my going to stick with the music. Um, but I mean, I wasn't planning on doing that. I, he just brought me up there because he, he wanted to hang out. But yeah, so that was the original lineup. And Kelly, I, and there were just things that had happened. She didn't get along with Theo. Like, they were, they were, it just wasn't working out. So. One story about Pat in particular, uh, famously interviewed on The Wedge by Sookie and Lee one summer when you guys are on tour. Uh, Pat says in that interview that he is Andy Dixon from DBS's father. Now, when I see this on TV, it's it's the summer that I kind of discover Gob and DBS at the same time. I'm 14 kind of dumb as dirt. And at this point, you know, anyone that has a giant beard like Wolfman Pat. Looks like they could be 40 to 50 years old right. in, in my teenage brain. So I believe this to be absolutely true. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're friends. They go on tour together. Uh, the drummer from Gob is absolutely Andy's dad. Like, do, do you remember perhaps that moment? And maybe the follow up on that is, did that rumor ever follow the band? I think we told people a lot of bullshit. Like we just love to bullshit everyone constantly. And I mean, that was one that definitely like seemed like it could be. And I remember like DBS was a few years younger than me. So we took them on tour to California and it, and it was just, like the parents talked to us. And, and so it was a thing. So it was almost like, it kind of made sense that he would be their chaperone and like, he'd yeah. bring the kid on the road with them. <laughs> Not quite old enough to be his dad, but he did look like it. Now, yeah, as you know, like the, the DBS guys are are like a, a year or two older than I am. Uh, uh, so they would have been like 14, 15 when you took them on that tour. Like how much convincing did, did you have to do? Like when it came to speaking with their parents, being like, we're taking your children, you know, several thousand. I mean, we didn't do any of the convincing. We, we, DBS was the one band within the Vancouver scene that we just instantly like, like we were kind of being from the same pod or whatever the phrase is. We, yeah we got along super well and we kind of had similar sort of everything like the ideals. We were fucking crazy. We were like making fun of stuff and our music was kind of similar. So we hit it off right away. It was their manager that kind of um, orchestrated the whole thing. She was supposed to do a lot of the booking, but it, it all kind of fell on us. And so we were frustrated with her and we didn't do as much with them after that, just because it was, we had to work with her in order to work with DBS. Hmm. But she was the one that convinced their parents. 
And I think they just, they didn't grill us or anything. We just met them and they're like, yeah, these are nice kids, kind of just like our kids, except for the guy with the beard. What's his deal? I'm going to circle back to the EP briefly here. You, you, you were you were talking about uh, you know some of the jams that that you needed to record for for Too Late No Friends, such as like Custer's Last One Night Stand. Like what what is it about this song, a, a Theo song song? Like uh like what what sticks out to, to you about this song in in retrospect? I feel like you know it's a weird thing because you know once we started working with labels and and management and stuff, and whenever they said, oh I think this song's a hit, I fucking like. I would tense up. It would like I would cringe so much, and I think it's because it seems like it's manufactured. It seems like it's something that everybody's looking for. But it was just that was a song that naturally came about as we were writing our song. And of course, you want your songs to be good, but we wanted mm-hmm. to write the best songs that we could and the most interesting songs that we could. But that was the first song that I felt like was a natural kind of hit for us, for me anyway. Like I, it's just. So like, I don't even know if the lyrics totally make sense, but they speak in a poetic way that like, and then his chorus is like this, literally screaming this pain out. And it's fucking like, I don't know, it's like this sort of like emo, screamy punk song. And it's just, I, I just always thought it was fantastic. That was the first one that was sort of like, this is our calling card. Like, this is the song I, I've always felt. I don't know if Theo feels the same, but... <laughs> I do. I feel that. Is 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 it is it simple enough to think about this EP in terms of like Theo sings the songs that he writes, Tom writes sings the songs that he writes, or or was it a merger? No, that's exactly what it was. Um, I mean, we both contribute to each other's songs, but I've always tried to kind of tinker with Theo's songs a little more than he does with with mine. But he he will add parts too. Yeah. But I added all those little weird little indie kind of weird fucking riffs and stuff but yeah that was generally you write your songs i write my songs and we will collaborate and bring the songs to life together with just beats or suggest whatever um too late no friends had a little more writing together like we would write parts for i would write a solo for his song or a chord progression for this section and whatnot What can you tell me about speeding up significantly then for for the too late uh, no friends era? Like as as you said, the the EP is a different beast. Uh, you 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 really ramp up the BPMs for too late no friends. Like how how conscious of a decision was that? I I don't think it, I think it was a subconscious decision. I think we kind of started to find these bands like DBS, and I mean they didn't play quite that fast. I think we just saw bands that played fast or played with bands and it was sort of a thing that we could we could do to like keep up or compete. Like there's this competition. It's not like we were consciously in competition with bands, but it's sort of like they play this fast and we're gonna play this fast. But it was also just how crazy we were young and it felt good. Like there there was something exhilarating to play that fast. And it was, you know, it was something that that we were aware of after the fact. We wanted to slow down. We were like, these songs aren't as powerful as, as some other band's songs because they 
to slow it down, it punches, the speaker moves at this time, it's not constantly popping like popcorn. So we became conscious of it pretty quick. I think by the time we got to how far shallow takes you, we wanted to kind of slow. I mean, after two ain't no friends, while on tour, I felt that there was sort of an expectation for us. I, I felt like people didn't think we were as they thought we were a better band than what they saw live. Mm. I think we maybe put less care into into performing well at shows and like knowing, I don't know, being prepared and, and performing it well. And it's just, I don't even know. It's not like people said that to me, but I just kind of got that feeling after we kind of became a little more popular and people would come out and see us. Not that they were disappointed, but they, that they weren't as impressed as they could be. And so, you know, you start thinking about things in, in that regard. So right after that, I was sort of, I was looking towards what would be how far shallow takes you. Um, of course, we put out Asking on TV between there, which is sort of halfway. It's kind of getting there, mm-hmm. but it still is really scrappy. It's not that powerful. One thing about wanting to sound powerful and tight is when we were on tour, there were regions that like literally didn't, you know, I would call to book a show in Boston or New York or something, and they'd be like, we don't have pop punk bands around here. You're going to have to play with hardcore bands, but you're not going to want to because uh, the people, the fans aren't going to like you. And I'm like, fuck, I don't care. We play with hardcore bands at home. But that would happen. We would play with like emo bands and hardcore bands and ska bands. And then we started to kind of be influenced by that. And one, one of the local bands, um, Strain, the recordings always sounded fantastic and they just sounded so punchy and massive live. We were like, we don't necessarily want to be a hardcore band, but we want that power. We want to sound that good. We started working with the same engineer as them, Blair Calababa, and that was sort of our goal was to become as powerful as that. And we kind of dabbled this and kind of screamed the songs. It was just an honest thing. Like we were surrounded by hardcore bands and we became friends with Strain and Brandy Unit and, and uh, Spark Marker. Does part of that power also come from, you know, Gabe joining the band? Gabe, Gabe being in BNU, which is not not quite a pop punk band, not quite a hardcore band, somewhere somewhere in the middle, but uh, definitely some forceful drumming. Absolutely. When we were working on how far, like it was a long time in the making. It probably wasn't that long, but it felt like a long time. But uh, when we were working on it, we had incorporated these like halftime grooves and stuff. Like they were written into the song. And Pat was having a hard time with it. He didn't really want to improve. Like he would do things like go camping and get his Honda Civic stuck in the mud and be late for a recording session. So we had our frustrations with him and he wasn't really getting the parts. So we told him to, what do we do? Do we get a new drummer? Do you want to take lessons? And so he started taking lessons from Gabe, which I thought I was like, and he's not a drum teacher, but okay. So there was some minor improvements. Um, but still, like, I think his overall, I think he was a little frustrated how we wanted to move in this direction. We wanted to get better, but he didn't really care, I don't think. Gabe wound up filling in. Pat couldn't do a tour. 
I can't remember why. I think maybe he was having a baby or something. Gabe filled in for that tour. And after, you know, by the end of the tour, he's like, I would love to play with you guys if, uh, if you'll have me. So then as things, you know, didn't improve, we, uh, we asked Gabe to play on the record. Even before Pat was actually had left the band, we had gone forward with Gabe being the drummer for the record. And then Pat just basically resigned, kind of. And yeah, I mean, it was like we were all in really good shape musically, and Gabe was working really hard to play those fast tempos. We had intended to slow it down. Somehow the songs got even faster. And I think because we were playing with slow tempos, when it went double time, it was even faster. I don't, I don't know. But um, we were all also, you know, we had all gone through breakups at that period in our life. So we were sort of angry and not angry, but like going through change. And, and we were sort of like sublimating that, that all of that energy, and all the negative energy and all the and making something positive of it and making the record that we thought would like totally change everything for us. Maybe it did. I don't know. You're playing with hardcore bands. You're playing with ska bands. You're playing with with punk bands. Any any band that is around, Gob will play with them. I'm wondering how this also like manifests locally through like the series of Punk Strikes Back shows that Gob put together for a number of years in a row. Just these are diverse bills. The first one in North Delta, uh, only show that I can think of ever happening in there uh, uh, at at that location. Uh, you had hardcore bands, Spark Marker. Uh, the Smugglers played, Gob played. Ten Foot Pole was supposed to play, but the show got shut down because of a fight. I I don't really I don't know if I was involved in the Ten Foot Pole one. I, I can't remember. There was a couple that I I wasn't there for. I mean, oh, no, not, got, got, I was there got, for. Got, of course, I played it, but I yeah. may not been the promoter for it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, we always wanted to put a diverse bill. We wanted there were a bunch of like female bands like Cub and mal and uh 10 days late and we were friends with them and played and we always wanted a mix of everything spark marker was the band that made me want to like this is rewinding back to like the i saw spark marker when i was in the band with my cousin our bass player was friends with jason the bass player for spark marker they knew each other from saskatchewan and we were in the studio recording and jason came by and he said we're playing the nappy dugout and I'd never heard of Spark Market. And we went in and I was blown away. I was like, this is what I want to do. And then I kind of followed them and I read interviews. And, and Kim had written an article for in Disorder, I think. I forget what the headline was. It said, we came to conquer New York and New York conquered us. And it was just this stick. Like, it was just, first off, they fucking went to New York. And I, I'm like, I've, I've got to do this. I want to do I've got to do that. I got to get to New York. And I want to feel these feelings that these guys are feeling. Like, of course, you want your band to be successful, but it was just such a, the humility and like the article that he wrote was just beautiful. And I, like, that's what I want to be. I want to be in music like these fucking assholes who take themselves too seriously. Fuck that. I want to be in a scene that's nurturing and loving and, and humble. And and to me, Spark Market is huge. I don't know like how big they were in industry terms, 
But to me, they were a massive band in Vancouver, and that's what I wanted to do. And so that's why they were on the first show. It's like no brainer. I'd seen BNU. I loved BNU before Gabe was even in BNU. So we just wanted to put all the bands that we loved that were local on these bills because we after the first one we're like we can get fucking 800 to a thousand kids in here let's get a gathering for let's get a following for every band that we know and love very, very cool and you you did it for a number of years too i think like what like how, like do you remember when the last one was like how long has it been since you've done a official punk strikes back i'm not sure it's kind of murky because there was a couple i always assumed the first one was at the civic center but i think we couldn't get it so that's why we did it in delta but there was a couple like i know there was one that i think no use for a name played and i wasn't in town i was maybe visiting my girlfriend or something and then there was one called a, a punk story i'm not sure why we did that maybe there were two shows that year or something i think there were five or six though i honestly don't even know Theo maybe <laughs> now but uh things got a lot tighter like i think as you know how i was saying when i moved here the population was 20,000. By the 90s, it was like, what, 200,000. And as the population grew, things got a little more... Uh, we couldn't poster in schools. I remember a time where they wouldn't allow us in. They're like, they'd call the police on us and stuff. And then, yeah, there started to be like violence at schools and stuff. Um, more so than there, I'm sure there always was. But it became more difficult to put these shows on in that regard. And also, we got older and we started playing clubs. At that time, we could maybe bring 30 to 50 people into a bar show in Vancouver. But, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later, we could bring hundreds of people into a bar show. So we still talk about it. We talk about doing a Pump Strikes Back show, but I think it would maybe be at the Commodore or something like that. Just, we're not going to be posting schools. <laughs> jumping back and forth through some key things here but you know like as 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 you said you know you 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 stared at that uh, spark marker article you you were like i want to do this i want i want to have some some success uh, gob does become a successful band a lot of that is because of the videos the irreverent videos that the band makes you know so a band that takes itself uh, not too seriously like you said like i'm wondering if you can tell me about some of these video shoots uh, you know, we've kind of we've kind of focused on some of the earlier records. So maybe I'm wondering if you could tell me about uh, the I Hear You Calling video shoot with the zombie cheerleaders, possibly the the biggest budgeted gob video. Yeah, I think Give Up the Grudge is a higher budget, but that I Hear You Calling is definitely up there. Yeah, that was a song, you know, that that song came along. That was another very uh, Custer's Last One Night Stand song when we were working on those songs. Theo heard a, a demo of me just playing the vocal melody on guitar. And he's like, you got to do this song. I'm like, eh, it doesn't really fit. But he's, he's like, I don't care. And then we recorded it. He's like, oh my God, this fucking song is awesome. And it became the first, first single for that record, I guess. The director that did that video, he loved the God. I mean, we loved the God videos. Um, and he, he loved Soda. And he had done a video for a band called uh, By Divine Right. It was, I remember the donuts floating over their heads. and uh, I, I loved the video. And he wrote up that treatment. And it, it kind of sounds, it sounds impossible kind of to do the zombies. Although we had kind of done stuff similar. 
but it turned out better than I could even imagine. Like the zombie cheerleaders doing the thriller dance and stuff. It's just awesome. <laughs> it was a difficult one to perform on because they would hose down those bleachers and they'd be like, okay, more energy, jump around more. And it's like, you're going to fucking break our neck. It's not even like, <laughs> we're all, literally like on bleachers and in, jumping on and off the bleachers. So I didn't love the performance, having to shoot the performance. Um, but it was a super fun video to make. And it's yeah. funny, I went to a birthday party at a, uh, a restaurant in New York City. And I didn't know the people. I only knew a guy that was going to it. And he brought me as his plus one. And I was seated next to someone who does choreography and videos. And she's like, what band are you? I'm like, God. And she's like, oh, my God, I did the zombies. And I hear you calling. <laughs> like wild coincidence. But those things always seem to happen in New York. Did did it ever come up that maybe maybe you guys would do the zombie makeup? Like, would you have become Tom Thacker, the zombie? Yeah, for sure. If that was the thing, I mean, that could have been cool had we gotten bit by the zombies or whatever. Uh, but it, it happened to be the girl that got it, I guess, at the end. But yeah, we had, you know, it's funny. We had an interesting relationship with videos. We were sort of fuck videos at first. And it was Mint Records who they're like, you know, we've got to promote this record somehow. You guys work with us. We make a video. We want to do a video for you too cool. And we're like, all right, we'll do a video but on our terms. So we go in and we're like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a video for soda. We're going to build it. You're going to give us money to build a ramp and we're going to go jump bikes off it into a lake. And we kind of think we're kind of pulling one over on them. Meanwhile, they're listening. This is the greatest video idea I ever fucking heard. And they're like, <laughs> absolutely. So we shot that video. And of course it, it's, we only, we just wanted to go late jumping. I think we had been talking about it. And we're like, fuck, we should totally go late jumping. It's like, you've never gone? Okay, we got to do this. And then, you know, the uh, Theo the, with the bugs in his mouth at the end, like, it, it's amazing. Yeah. It was supposed to be a choreographed scene at the end where we're all lying in the water and making a flower pose, which would be amazing. Um, but the director for our first five videos was Theo's cousin. So they had a very close relationship and, um, he's like, we, if we don't, no one showed up, like it was the last day and it was just Theo. So he's like, we need to do something. So he caught all these daddy long legs, put them in his mouth and they shot that. <laughs> do you recall building the ramps? Because, uh, Matt Barber, dear friend of mine in, uh, the self-esteem project, uh, who played a punk strikes back with Gob, uh, and later in the red light sting with me, uh, he said that he built those ramps in his backyard with, with Andrew Dennison from ocean three, another band that played a punk strikes back, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. We knew Matt, you know, from the scene, I, I can't remember if Matt was in a band at that point, but he was always around and he was a good shit. We knew he was a BMXer too. So we're like, this is, this is who we're going to talk to. We had another friend who was a professional racer do the jumps at the beginning, but yeah, we, we went to Matt for the, the ramp and the bikes. We borrowed his bikes. He asked us not to jump his bikes and we used his bikes. <laughs> Sorry. But we drained them. We did what we could to keep them from getting rusty. And he knew that yeah. we jumped. Them too. <laughs> I mean, he should have been there to jump it, but I think he was probably in school. I had to go to work. I, I was only there for one day of the jumps. Um, the You're Too Cool video, it, you know, you're, you're curling in some part of the video, but there's also a mix of live clips taken from different gob shows around the lower mainland. I recall you filming one of these in Abbotsford. It was a show with SNFU. Uh, and you're like, everybody, we're going to film this song. Go crazy. This is this is the one and only time that I stage dive during during this show. 
And I was Amazing. like, I, and it was kind of like, you know, like a kind of a cheesy. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get in a gob video. I'm going to, I'm going to stage dive. But I will say might not have been the best stage dive because it's not in that video. Oh yeah. Well, that means there's a lot of factors where the camera was <laughs> the, the biggest one. Yeah. I, that's what I was going to ask if it made the cut. Yeah, we shot that all over the place. There's, I think it was Seymour Mountain. We did the snowboarding stuff. I, you know, somebody asked us about a few videos and it's like, are you guys obsessed with sports? Like everything's got, and I don't know, we aren't. But every time we went on tour in the US, people would be like, hey, you're from Canada, hey? And like all like all the, the stereotypical things. And so we kind of played it up and we thought it was funny. And It'd be funny. We thought it'd be funny to do a total winter sport thing. I don't know. It's it, like some of our videos got a little convoluted at that point. We tried to cram too much shit into it. It's better to just okay. We're just gonna ride our bikes to the lake and jump them off. It makes for a <laughs> better narrative for a video. But I mean, looks, it looks good. Yeah. Out. Getting back to the like world according to Gob era, and also just thinking about playing strange lineups, I'm wondering if you remember this on on that weekend trip that I did with Gob. You guys played the Calgary Stampede. This is the summer of 2001. The lineup for this show is Britney Spears impersonator, Backstreet Boys impersonator, Hypnotist, Backstreet Boys impersonator again. Britney Spears, and then Gob. Do you do you remember this show? I don't, <clears throat> but I feel like that would fuel hijinks. Like the that's just such a strange I, lineup that <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't remember that. But I do remember being banned from the from the Stampede. The the hijinks that happened during the set, as as I recall, I was kind of uh, you know at the back of the crowd in like a little booth selling oh. T-shirts. Uh, someone pepper sprayed the crowd. So there was just like waves of kids like running away from Gob. Yeah, I, they kind of, <laughs> who would do that at the Stampede, I guess. I don't know. No. And a lineup like that, like what an odd lineup. That that sounds like the oddest lineup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> odd ones. What, yeah, what are some other odd ones? Like what, like, do, do you, do you remember any other strange, strange bills throughout the, the Gob, the Gob career? Uh, no, not really. Nothing like that. I don't know. I mean, I've always kind of, I've liked eclectic lineups. Like it's, it's like, it was fun back in the scene days for all the bands to be kind of similar. But when we hit a festival, like I just saw that some 41 playing a festival with Sean Paul and that gets me super stoked mm. as opposed to a bunch of rock bands, metal punk bands, Sean Paul. That sounds all right. Yeah. It's awesome. So, yeah, I don't know. I've always kind of loved the odd bill. Um, but no, the joke, Theo's joke was always, uh, it's, we're playing with moist cornhole tour. <laughs> I think it was thing that I always fucking say when we did an interview.
we've just celebrated the most recent one of these uh, reissues just just the other day, the 20th anniversary edition of foot and mouth uh, disease. Like think, thinking back on on all these reissues, like uh, like what what kind of memories do, do, do they bring back? You know, having and I guess maybe there's just something cool about these records coming out on vinyl for the first time as well. Yeah, it's it's amazing to hear them on vinyl. It's like it was kind of I was a little emotional listening to the song, you know, like there's actual points in our life that are written about articulate or not. Like it was periods in our time where things were happening and change was happening. And it was amazing to hear the songs. And there were uh, Easter eggs I totally forgot about. Like when we heard the mastered version, there was a world according to God has ends with a recording of us doing Zorba the Greek. Oh, which I didn't even remember doing like it kind of <laughs> became familiar as it went along. But yeah, there were things that I, I couldn't even remember about. That wasn't on the vinyl because it just takes up space and the audio degrades as we put more stuff on it. So we didn't put it on there. Uh, you know, people complain about it. It's like, why isn't strapping on dildos on Too Late No Friend? Well, because it's 10 minutes long. It's going to make the whole record sound like shit to have. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll put those the bonus things on a record for something <laughs> have on vinyl. Uh, it's been 10 years since apartment 13. Like, like are, are, are you actively or ha have you been writing gob songs th th since then? Or, or like, tell me what's going on in the, in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm always writing and it's just the, I've been touring pretty, pretty steadily. Uh, once, you know, Derek Wibley from some had gone through a whole bunch of health issues pretty serious stuff almost died from drinking and when he came back sober he was like go 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 and i felt like we were even touring too much we were doing the united states and then we do an undersell in the united states and we do another undersell in the united states it's like let's give the united states a break and give us a break there hasn't been a lot of time aside from the pandemic which i did write a bunch of stuff but i just it was kind of all over the map like some things are folk songs or piano song and then once in a while i'll get into like rocking out some punk rock songs there isn't anything scheduled for any focused plan but there's a lot of songs to choose from eventually once yeah. we get there now what what is what is going on with some 41 then like obviously you just released the single uh a, a month ago or so like how hard and heavy is is 2024 going to be for some 41 2024 is going to be very busy for some 41 it's going to be like full-on into uh 2025 like maybe spring it's uh going to be the last record it's a double album that's coming out so it's like i don't know it's, it's kind of bittersweet i think derek needs a change or at least a break so we'll be indefinite hiatus so it's bittersweet to promote it you know we're excited about i just flew up from los angeles after shooting a video which is super fun but it's sort of like this is amazing it's like ah oh, it's coming to an end so yeah I have mixed feelings about all that, but uh, yeah, it'll be a very busy year and a half or so, however long that cycle lasts. Thinking on some some gear questions, I'm wondering if you can tell me about how you approach a guitar differently in some 41 than you would in Gob, and and maybe some of that is, is just literally the guitar in your hands. Like I th I think of, you know, those early Gob years being Strat years, and you're you're more of, you're more of like a Les Paul looking kind of body these days. Yeah, 
Um, well, I started playing a Les Paul. I had a vintage uh, Les Paul. Theo and I both got them. And my my cousin that I mentioned that I played in a band with had a when I was a little kid, he had this band called Hammer Jam. And I had their eight by ten on the wall. And they had a, a strat, a Les Paul, and a Rickenbacker. And I felt like bands kind of have to they have to have different guitars. They can't all be playing the same guitar. It's just something that's been ingrained in me, even though you can totally do Les Pauls on everyone. Uh, and it would be awesome. Or strats. Well, I don't even care. Like I I love all guitars, even a shitty guitar. You can get you can get a cool sound out of it or a unique sound out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wound up getting a, a a strat from Theo that he had painted and called the Horsecock, and it got stolen. And then I had a strat made, a hardtail strat, and uh, we just we played hard and fast. And our guitars, the whole thing was we didn't have tech, so we just didn't want the guitars to go out of tune. So we played. I played like 12 to 54 gauge strings and a hardtail strap and then glued the neck on because I used to beat that thing up so much and surf it across, like throw it up across the stage and surf on it, literally. And that was a sturdy guitar. I can't even remember. I started playing an SG with God, but I don't remember when that happened exactly. Well, I started playing Paul Reed Smith's because I had been given a, an endorsement deal, but I was never really into them. But they gave me these expensive guitars, so I played them. And then I got an SG. So I play an SG with, with God now. But mm -hmm. with some, I was feeling, you know, when when Dave left, my role was to play the Dave stuff. So it was, Derek had decided it should be a Les Paul. So I've played a Les Paul since. I'm playing EFPs with some now. Yeah. Tom, the, the, I'm, I'm sure I could chew your ears off with a, a lot of trivia about Gob, but uh, I, I, th I think maybe this could be a good point to kind of wrap things up. Uh, one question just at the end here. You're, you're in your childhood home. Is the Hammer Jam poster somewhere that you could hang up right, right now? The Hammer Jam poster is not here. I don't know if I even have it because things have gone into storage and yeah. I've been going through my storage here and pulling stuff out. It's funny because I'll pull out shirts that I wore 20 years ago or a pair of brand new Vans shoes. And, oh, I guess I'll wear these now, but I haven't gotten through all the storage yet because it's down in my brother's crawl space and, yeah. you know, a finite amount of space in New York. So I can't just fly everything back. I have to fill the suitcase as much as I can handle, I guess, at that time. Yeah. Uh, you're you're just about to head back to the East Coast to play some gob shows. Uh, you've got some Sum Forty One. Uh, you've got a busy twenty twenty four with Sum Forty One. Is is there going to be a gob show in Vancouver proper anytime soon? Because you didn't play Vancouver on that run with Billy Talent. We didn't. Uh, that we've been working on that, and, and we tried to make it happen for early twenty twenty four, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But um, it's still possibly good. But at some starts up in early February, well, actually January, but then mm. just a one-off. So it, it's there's not a lot of time to fit things in. And we want it to be a really special show. Like we were talking about a, a Punk Strikes Back show of some sort, but yeah. I, it might just be labeled that. We did talk about getting DBS, asking DBS and Sparkmark and getting some of the main players, but yeah. it, it's, it's impossible to make that happen. That's that's insane. I would, would I would cool. I would love that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh man, uh, Tom, this has been so tremendously fun. I've been meaning to do this kind of a talk with you for a while. I, you know, you're 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 close to my heart. You're you're one of the first 
punk people I ever met in Vancouver. So, so it's very special to, to connect, you know, every few years and, and, you know, it's been 10 years since I saw you. So this has been just dynamite. Yeah. It's been awesome. Yeah. I remember same, same here. Yeah. You were one of the first kind of kids in the scene that I met too. Cool to chat and catch up on this. Reminisce. Once again, that was Tom Thacker of both Gob and Sum 41. The former having just released four vinyl reissues through Dine Alone Records, the latter of which will be touring in support of Heaven and Hell throughout 2024. The album comes out March 24th. Huge talk here. I loved getting into all of that. It sounds like there might be a Punk Strikes Back percolating in the background there, you know, probably around the Sum 41 tours. I should probably reach out to the DBS guys to see where they're at with that. Curious developments there. Could be nothing. Something to note on this talk, maybe kind of hinging towards some of the other talks that we've had there, and maybe just life in general, is how one person can have these hyper-specific memories uh, of a relationship. You know, maybe that's about a song or a show. But really, those are just moments in time for the other person. And I guess, you know, when thinking about Gob's 30-year career... Asking him about, you know, the cover song that he was playing in the back of the van the day a magician opened up for the band at the Calgary Stampede. I guess you don't remember them all. I have one more dumb story that I'll just get out pretty quick here. But the summer that I met Tom, I tried to put together a tape comp of local punk bands. This, of course, including Gob. I'll be honest, I called Tom at work a ton to get contacts from him, which seems Kind of crazy in retrospect, maybe a little rude, a little, little bit of a time suck there, but he was very generous in giving me numbers for bands uh, like Pluto, who at the time they would have been on the same label, Mint Records. The Pluto folks gave me the number for 10 Days Late, one of the bands that played Punk Strikes Back. I reached out to a hardcore band called Pipe Bomb. There was a band called Belter that I saw play with Pipe Bomb in a parking lot that summer, and for some reason I had their phone number. The tape comp absolutely did not happen. I had no money nor business savvy, but I appreciate that at the very least, Tom was very encouraging about the project and getting it off the ground. Maybe I should get that going again. I'm going to cap the podcast here. Another sentimental gut feeling episode. Maybe they all are. Maybe these are all just great ways for me to get in touch with the people I haven't heard from in some time. You know, just get to reconnect on some music, these formative punk and hardcore experiences that uh, have put me where I'm at today. Thanks to Tom again for the in-depth conversation. Thank you all for checking it out. You can subscribe to the Gut Feeling podcast and newsletter over at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling. Episodes are archived on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And that's it. I'll catch you all the next time.